This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Shouldn't you be at home? It's a lovely chip! Oh, it's a brilliant goal from Lord Bohinen! Still it's not away. Southgate shot. Milosevic scores. DPR could do with a bit of magic from him. Maybe this is it. It is! Andy Sinton from nothing. Brian Roy has headed for his interlead. Whelan. Oh, what a goal from Noel Whelan. No power on it whatsoever. But Saibi has made a horrendous error. Now, you know him better than anybody, probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Only oh, Hassan. No. Hello and welcome to Quickly Kevin Willie's Score. I am Chris Skoll. Joining me, Josh Whittacombe. Hello. And a man who is hoarding vats of salad cream. Let's just hope he doesn't drop them on his toe. It's Mr. Michael Marden. <laughs> Hello. How are we? Very well. I should say, if this is slightly stilted, it's because we are all away from each other. For Not for the interview with Dave Besson. That was recorded prior uh, to the lockdown. And we're all in what now seems an audaciously tiny room for four people to be in together. But um, <laughs> we are doing this uh, via um, Zencaster, whatever that is. Okay, well, we've established where we are. Should we just get straight into the correspondence? I'm Jim Rosenthal, and this is the Electronic Postbag. You've got mail. Right, we have had a lot of good correspondence already uh, this series, and we, we are going through extra correspondence in our, um, now that what I call quickly Kevin specials on Wednesdays and Fridays. Uh, some of this will refer to other correspondence we've had on those, so you will need to listen to the full lot to understand the full conversation. Sorry, guys, because I can't remember which was on which. Hello, team. Listening to your story about Richard Keyes demanding a penalty from a 17-year-old ref in a charity match in the last episode, I had to get in touch. Well, just on that Richard Keyes thing quickly, um, how many references or appearances does someone have to make before they get their own jingle? Oh, good call. Yeah, I think we should do a Richard Keyes jingle. Um, Songs in the keys of life? (laughs) I've got the keys, I've got the secret. (laughs) That's good. Yeah. Yeah, lovely. Well, I look forward to it already have been being dropped in now, kind of post um, us discussing this live on air. It, 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 it was just banter. It, 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 it was just banter. 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 It was just banter. 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 It's just a little bit of fun. My stepbrother used to have a Saturday job in Dolces Shoe Shop in Guildford. This must have been a good 20 years ago. One afternoon, who should walk in but Richard Keyes? He was with one of his kids and was, I think, buying shoes for school. As my stepbrother did his job, measuring the kid's foot, going upstairs and downstairs for different shoes to try on, Keyes was consistently grumpy and curt and apparently smelled strongly of aftershave. Anyway, he came and went, and my stepbrother thought little more of it until he got a call at home from the manager saying that Keyes had got home to find that he'd left the shop with two left shoes rather than a matching pair. The manager said Keyes was absolutely furious and demanded that my stepbrother was sacked. Apparently. (laughs) (laughs) While wearing the two left shoes. Tried to leave the shop, just been walking around in a circle. Just to get Keyes off the phone, the manager conceded that he would indeed sack my stepbrother, but reassured him that he would do no such thing and enjoyed another happy six months at Dulcis. Thank you very much, guys. John. 
Unbelievable story. Absolutely <laughs> loved it. I I would never think to try and get someone sacked for a mistake no, like obviously that. Obviously, it's alleged. But um, if you've uh, if you've helped Richard Keys pick out any shoes, you know where to get in touch. Do you want more? Yeah. Yeah. Has Steve Bruce got his own jingle? No. I mean, that's criminal, as are many of the protagonists in his book. <laughs> <laughs> this is Adam Hall. If, if Steve Bruce has got a jingle, drop it in here. Two and a half hours to kick off. It all starts to get a bit serious now. Just time to sort out tickets for family and friends. Predict a few scores in the player sweep. That's worth 70-odd quid to the winner. Hi, lads. Love the show. After listening to the continued debate about whether Steve Bruce wrote his own books... I thought I would add the following story. Just after the release of the first book, I went to a book signing with Steve at a local Asda store in Huddersfield. From what I remember, he was very pleasant and happy to have his photograph taken with fans. Does this back up the argument Steve wrote the books as he was signing copies of them? Well, well, well. Guys, thoughts? Well, look, at the very least, he is happy to put himself in a position to endorse them. Yes. And that, for me, isn't too many degrees apart from writing them himself. So I'm coming around to the fact he wrote them. Yeah, he did. What about you, Michael? Yeah, my position hasn't changed. I think he definitely wrote them. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I think Steve Bruce wrote them. In which case, his son, Alex Bruce, needs to have a long, hard word with himself about spreading misinformation. <laughs> <laughs> can, can I, I've got something to share. Uh, yeah. It's, it's Eddie Large related. So I don't know if anyone has seen this, but there's been a picture doing the rounds. Obviously, sadly, Eddie Large died recently. But there's a picture doing the rounds on Twitter that I, w- I will share with you both and I'll make sure it goes onto our uh, Instagram account. But in the kind of what I presume is the late 70s, like early 80s, Eddie Large would sit on the Manchester City bench. Oh, and there's wow. a picture of him yeah. sitting on the bench at Main Road as Manchester City pay Forest. <laughs> He's on the bench. <laughs> is mad is it morale i think i read something about this i was reading about eddie large um, i think daniel taylor wrote about it in the athletic oh this is it this is unbelievable should i just read this this is from the athletic right paul lake remembers the mood so buoyant at man city at halftime so man city needs to win to go up right they are three nil up against bournemouth at halftime and Mel Matchin, their manager, decided to start the party early by cutting short all the usual bits and pieces of manager speak, keep it tight, don't get complacent, and so on, to announce he had invited a special guest to give everyone a quick motivational pep talk. Eddie Large had been waiting in the physio room. Large was so popular at Main Road, a succession of different managers, Malcolm Allison, John Bond, Billy McNeil, and so on, would let him sit in the dugout as a lucky mascot, even in the 1981 <laughs> FA Cup final against Tottenham Hotspur. <laughs> what was going on? No. I mean... One of the most bizarre things that ever happened. If you were offered, because obviously you do a bit of work at West Ham, if you kind of, if David Moyes said, do you want to come and sit next to me on the bench? <laughs> would you? <laughs> uh, question, question one, would you? A question two, yeah. if you did and you had some thoughts on the game, would you say them? <laughs> Imagine if a piece of advice I give really works. Oh, like a Roy of the Rovers moment. Well, I heard a story that Andre Villas-Boas, he basically got his big break in managing. Was it, I think it may have been, was it Bobby Robson or something like that? No, I think it was Mourinho that did that for Bobby Robson, wasn't it? Or was it, but I think Villas-Boas came from quite a kind of pen-pushy, element as well it's quite weird that um, kind of bit of news for you i've been on andre villas boas wikipedia while we've been having this conversation and there is a, a couple of key sentences i'd like to read you yeah at the age of 16 villas boas found himself living in the same apartment block as sir bobby robson who is then manager of porto following a debate between the two robson appointed villas boas to porto's observation department that kind of implies that wow. villas boas was 16 when he was chatting to sir bobby robson wow what kind of money is Andre Villas-Boas coming from that he's living in the same block as Bobby Robson? <laughs> Surely Bobby Robson doesn't need to live in a block. Like, he can buy his own house. Just... <laughs> um, Bobby Robson arranged for Villas-Boas to get all his coaching licences. He got his C licence at 17, his B licence at 18, and his A licence at 19. Wow. That's insane, wow. isn't it? What a little dweeb. What a little dweeb. <laughs> but then, I think, you know... I was playing championship manager, definitely 16, 17. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, Velasquez was doing it in real life. <laughs> yeah, but you 
got to understand what kind of lifestyle he's had because he's grown up living in the same block where a football manager would live. You know, he's not having to deal with the cut and thrust of living in Wanstead. Yeah. <laughs> he's football's equivalent of an old Etonian. Yeah, exactly. He's a made man. He's Joe getting Wall. in the lift and Bobby Robson's in there. Imagine the circumstances. If you've been living in that same in an apartment block with Sir Bobby Robson and you're deep in champ and you found yourself in a lift with him, do you think there's a set of circumstances that you may go, Sir Bobby, oh, like, I'm playing this coaching game at the moment. Uh, have you heard of uh, Ibrahim Abakayoko or something like that? You could get into a real coaching. Sir Bobby Robson comes up to your, your flat. He has a look at your championship manager. Suddenly yeah. he's so impressed with what you're doing. And next thing, you're Villas Boas. Yeah, I, I, it could happen. That's, it's basically a badly written football movie, isn't it? It's like a terrible yeah. version of Goal or, or like, woof. <laughs> <laughs> Like something you'd see on CITV. Actually, on the subject of football movies, we were discussing our idea for the lockdown, which was doing some um, quickly Kevin film club specials where we'll be watching classic football movies um, by classic. I don't mean like really good ones. We will be starting soon with When Saturday Comes, the Sean Bean movie set uh, in the world of Sheffield United. Do look out for that. That'll be one of our specials on weekdays. All the uh, main episodes remain on Mondays. Now, shall we get on with the interview? Just before that, can I just point out that Andre Velasquez managed the British Virgin Islands at the age of 21. <laughs> <laughs> Is that real? I bet How does that even happen? That's, I mean, it sounds like a way of saying um, that he was a virgin till he was 21. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what he calls his genitals. <laughs> Twenty-one. Yeah, but what you've got to remember is he lived in the same apartment block as the king of the British Virgin Islands. <laughs> <laughs> how can you? How can they take it? I guess I'm just trying to think how that would work. Can you can't walk into a dressing room at twenty-one as a manager and like? <laughs> and also, how good a job can you do of managing the British Virgin Islands? I don't. I don't obviously, quite good because he went on to you know obviously failed at Chelsea, but. Success enough to become the manager of Chelsea. Yeah. But then you've got to remember he did live in the same apartment block as Roman Abramovich. <laughs> <laughs> it was like Stella Street. <laughs> I know I know some listeners will be complaining that Andre Villas is not nineties territory, but he would have been living in that apartment block with Sir Bobby Robson in the nineties. <laughs> yeah, of course. It was like a sitcom. Uh, he was like Kramer. I'd love that. Uh, the Andre Villas-Boas origin story has yeah. got to be written. How old is he? He's 42, mate. Most managers haven't even started their careers yet. He's lived with Bobby Robson and managed an international team. <laughs> it's been nine years since he made his debut as a manager in the Premier League, and he's still only 42. I wonder if he's a bit like um, like a child actor who becomes famous too young. He's like Doogie Howser. <laughs> Him managing the British Virgin Islands was his Citizen Kane. He never really... What's mad about it was absolutely... Uh, He was managing Chelsea at 33. That's three years older than I am now. Well, you know, he never got... Like, he never... The players never really accepted him there. Is that... Like, they were all probably around that age. I think he came in towards the end of that era, didn't he? So they must have just been like... Who's this bloody virgin? (laughs) And then little do they know, he's got 12 years of experience under his belt by the time he's walking in there at 33. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to remember, though, he did live in the same apartment block as John Terry at that point. So that did ease it up in the dressing room. Can I just ask, he's living with his parents in that apartment block, is he? <laughs> I, I mean, he didn't move out. I mean, his life is so mad he could have left home at three. <laughs> Right, if you uh, want to get in touch, if you've got anything on Andre Villas-Boas, we're more than interested. If you know, if you've got, ideally, the Zoopla for that apartment block, which really interests me. Um... <laughs> well, I think there's a few key themes that are worth uh, worth calling out. Have you got any stories about managers who became great managers managing someone completely rubbish early in their career? Have you ever lived in the same apartment block as another footballer or manager? And have you ever, yourself, managed a team despite being much younger than everyone you were managing. Sunday league, five-a-side, whatever, school, whatever. Here's how to get in touch. Get in touch with the show. Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at quicklykevin. 
and sign up to the mailing list at quicklykevin.com. Right, one of our favourite interviews ever. This is the wonderful Dave Bessant. Our guest this week is a literal titan of English football, a Wimbledon, Chelsea, Southampton and Nottingham Forest legend, the first goalkeeper to save a penalty in an FA Cup final, the first goalkeeper to captain a team to an FA Cup final victory. It's our pleasure to welcome to Quickly Kevin, the big man, Mr Dave Besant. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, yeah. Dave. You're our tallest, you're our tallest guest <laughs> tallest. so far. <laughs> it is cosy in here, but... Um... <laughs> it is. <laughs> they don't make podcast studios for goalies, yeah. it turns out. You're our second Wimbledon alumni as well. And I think Bobby Gould surprised me of how small he is. And you've surprised me how big you are. So, like, together you must have made quite an awesome sight for anyone. I think when you look at Gordy nowadays, he's definitely shrinking. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I get the same response from a lot of people, the fact that they see me and say, I knew you were big, but I didn't think you were that big. And I just think that I do tend to be, I'm I'm widening a little bit more now rather than growing higher. (laughs) How tall are you? Six foot four. Were you tall for a goalie? Um, I always imagine Shilton's not tall. I I think you had, no, Shilton's wasn't. Shorts wasn't very big, and when you looked at the different eras, there was a lot of goalkeepers that were quite small. Yeah. Um, and then I think it come the age and the change that goalkeepers needed to be bigger. Yeah. You know, you need to be. Able, I mean, even Peter Benetti, who I worked with when I when I was at Chelsea, and when I see the size of him, he's very slight as well. You know. Yeah. So I think dealing with the aerial bombardment that we got in those days, it helped to be a bit. Bit bigger, yeah. and he was expected to start and uh, look after uh, more than just his six yard box. Yeah, it's, I guess it's quite a dangerous occupation to have been a goalkeeper in the eighties and nineties. It's a bit like, like you say, the football was lumping it into the box. Did you feel the aches and pains now? It's funny because in in the day that I was playing, muscular injuries didn't bother me at all. But there was all the the injuries that uh, ligaments and cartilages and things like that that. It just wore out. You just started, to, and, and now I'm suffering a little bit from those facts. That and you know, people before me, you know, I wanted to play. It was a big thing for me to be on the pitch, and I can't look at goalkeepers that are quite happy to be sitting the number two, number three, picking up massive salaries, but mm. not playing because your your career is so short. Well, yours wasn't. No, no, I don't mean <laughs> to put it. It went on and on, to be honest. <laughs> it did, yeah. yeah. But it, it could be so short, the fact yeah. that I just wanted to enjoy and be out there for as, uh, as many minutes as possible. Yeah. yeah. Um, we always start by asking uh, if you can name your sponsors uh, from the teams uh, that you played for. Obviously, you've played for 400 teams. <laughs> so we'll just we'll focus on the big ones. So we're going to run you through. Um, Wimbledon, 1979-1988. There's four shirt sponsors there. Um, John Lilliet was one. Yeah, what is John Lilliet? He's he was a building company. He was um, he was a Wimbledon fan, <laughs> and he just sponsored the the kit. And I mean, that was a thing in those days. It wasn't it wasn't nothing of great yeah. finance. Uh, it was yeah. an advertising platform, and uh, and we got a little bit of money for it. But yeah, um, yeah John Lilliet. Do you have a photo shoot and a building site with him? <laughs> no, we actually didn't. No, not, <laughs> not this show. Did we have Crispins? Was that one? Yeah, yeah Crispins. Crispins. What's that? It was, Crispins was um, uh, a car dealership, and I actually had a sponsored car off of them. So oh, did nice. you? Yeah, so oh, nice. It, it went down quite well, and there was a toy. They, they had a, a few, but I think there was Toyota. So I had a, I had a Toyota Corolla in my early days, and the thing was in those days. You know, when you had a sponsored car, they they wanted people to know you were driving, and so you had your name put on it. And, <laughs> oh, your own name? Oh, yeah, yeah. You had your <laughs> name on the back of the car. And, uh, funny, a funny thing, we used to have because we didn't have goalkeeping coaches. I'm going to just yeah. sidestep a little bit here. We didn't have goalkeeping coaches. We um, we used to have little seminars. We used to get together. All the goalkeepers from regions would get together for a weekend and and do some goalkeeping work with oh, with yeah. you know ex goalkeepers. And the ex goalkeepers then were Mike Kelly, Alan Hodgkinson. Bob Wilson were the main yeah. ones, so it was great getting the experience off of them. But then one one of these weekends away, we turned up and in the car park was this car. I can't remember the make of it. It was John Burridge. Oh yeah, yeah. And you know what a lunatic he yeah, is. Yeah. And he had, he had his his name was bigger than anybody else's name on a car, <laughs> but it had England's number one goalkeeper, <laughs> and he'd never ever played for England. <laughs> Two others for Wimbledon. Um, well, cup final year. Well, we actually we had two in the same year. But it was um, Truman's. Yeah, yeah. And then for the cup final, we went to Carlsberg. Just for the cup final. Just literally, just for the cup final. Wow. Because it was 
you know, worldwide, Truman's was was an English company. Yeah. Um, whereas Carlsberg was, was worldwide. So ah. they went with a brand. So just for that one day, you were Carlsberg? Yeah, literally. Yeah. And was that the same company as Truman's? Or yes. Tru- oh, right. I think Carlsberg owned Truman's. So right, just yeah. a, you know, the, the biggest, biggest gal. And then you went to Newcastle? Yes. Uh, Greenall's? Yes, very wow. good. Chelsea? Commodore? Oh. Yes. <laughs> this is it. Southampton? It was Dimplex and Sanderson. Dimplex, yes. We asked, we asked Matt Letitia what Sanderson do, and he couldn't tell us. Any ideas? Sanderson would be paints and uh, materials, is it? I think it was... Was it not boilers? <laughs> I, don't, oh, I, don't I, don't know. Know. I don't even know. You've done pretty well. Now, you're, you're our first goalie we've ever had on the show. We want to talk to you about your career, but we end up just talking about things we'd always wanted to know about being a goalie. So, was your life separate from the rest of the team on a day-to-day basis? Um, no. Because um, we didn't have a goalkeeping coach, as I say, we didn't have a mm. goalkeeping coach in those days. So, you know, you was just stuck in goal and literally battered. <laughs> People taking shots at you all day. Oh, it was, you know, like when they were doing a shooting session, there, there was hardly any control to it. And I can remember some of the ones we used to have at, at Wimbledon, you'd have three or four people shooting you at the same time. <laughs> and when, when, I, when I joined Wimbledon, you know, it, it was a hard score to come into. You know, yeah. there's, there's all these stories and... And to to some extent, I've, I've always said it was a form of bullying, but it was the making of Wimbledon. You, yeah. you had to you had to be strong enough to come through the onslaught that was given to you from certain players. Yeah. Um, so what happened to you when you joined? Like, what was the kind of first experiences of it? Well, just I just remember one of the you know, like the good thing was that I don't think there was anyone in particular that I was taking over from because Dickie Guy, who was the Wimbledon legend before I, I turned up, mm. he he never turned pro. Right, because he had his own company and he had to work, and he couldn't he couldn't afford. What was his job? I think he was in um, plumbing and and heating. Like, he had his own company, <laughs> yeah. But it was obviously only more money. Even Stuart Pearce, Stuart Pearce, before he went to Coventry, came yeah. to Wimbledon, and we said, you know, like what a player he is, we want to sign him. But he didn't want to sign pro because he was earning more money playing for Wildstone. <laughs> And he was an electrician. So, you know, in those days, the, the football money just yeah. did, didn't, That's you know... mad, isn't it? Well, it just didn't fill your wallet as much as it was doing yeah. part-time football and yeah. and, play, and uh, working. The training session where it, it, it went off for me was, um, again, we had a shooting session and there was balls everywhere. It wasn't like, you know, clear the decks, there's a ball in, in front. So someone's hit a shot and it's either rebound and stayed out there and then the next shot's cut on its way. And as I'm diving for this shot, it's actually hit the ball that was in front... <laughs> In front of me, yeah. and so it's ricocheted, and it's gone completely the wrong direction to where I'm diving, but it's hit me right in the Niags. <laughs> and I was, I was just rolling up one of because I'm full stretch going for the other one, and I'm rolling up on the floor. And and uh, Wally, he actually told me, he said, um, I, I'll tame it down a little bit. He said, because uh, I used to ride a motorbike, yeah, because I couldn't that, afford a car. Well, that's mad as well. Yeah, which is, again, which I mean, when I when I because I was on trial at this time, and he he said to me. Why don't you get on your motorbike and go back to Edgware Town? Yeah, it's a little bit stronger than that. So. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it was it was one of those that uh, um, later on I stood up to him in training, and that was it. I'd passed the initiation, I'd passed the test to yeah. to become a Wimbledon player. And uh, did you like think to yourself, "I've got to"? Is that your character, or were you like, like speaking to you now, you don't feel like very like alpha and like aggro as a person? No, I think uh, I think I've mellowed. <laughs> I've definitely mellowed, um, and I think you had to you had to be prepared to stand your corner. There was players, like I say, have come and and not really lasted their term at Wimbledon and such. And uh, one of those characters was Ian Holloway, strangely enough. Oh, was and it? when you see what he's like now, yeah, you'd have thought he'd have fitted perfectly into the, <laughs> yeah. the Wimbledon dressing room. Yeah, but he found it really tough because he came from Bristol. Yeah, and um, we used to train at. Um, kind of transport calf like the transport calf was, was where people would come in have their teas and coffees yeah. and we would be going out to training on this massive park there'd be people riding bikes across your training field <laughs> taking dogs for walks so you know the training was always how can you do training in that situation well that's that's the thing is in days gone by that's what we had to put up with we didn't mm. have our own training grounds we couldn't afford it and, and now most most clubs have their own training ground yeah. a facility where they can at least you know, like barrier off to say, you can't come in here, this is where yeah. you're working. It wasn't like that in our day. Were people going past going, bloody hell, that's Dave Besson? <laughs> no, they, they weren't saying that. <laughs> he drives for Crispins. <laughs> <laughs> he rides a motorbike. <laughs> but, but, uh, no, it, it was strange. It was a really strange scenario to have, have, like, say, people walking their dogs, dogs coming after the ball. 
you know, and it, it just interrupt the whole training session. But it's like that high altitude training. You know, when an athlete goes to high altitude, so it's better. Once you're playing on a pitch without a dog, you're going to be so good. <laughs> it's like it's like training with a little ball on Copacabana Beach. When there's no dog, you're such a better player. Um, in goal, how did you realise that you were a good goalie rather than an outfield player? It was difficult because <coughs> I played as an outfield player it's all of my all my school days. Yeah. Up until sixth form. We had a very good goalkeeper. His, his name was Steve Brown. Yeah. He was really good. I used to be a striker and then he left in a sixth form to go to work and I didn't have work so I stayed on to further my education. <laughs> it was only the fact I did have a, a job that I, I stayed on. Yeah. And because I used to mess around in the street, which we used to do in those days, play in the street, in goal, I thought, well, I'll go in goal. And then during that year, um, we used to have an old school leavers team called the Old Uffingtonians. The start of my career, I played for Old Uffingtonians 7th 11. <laughs> the following year, they got wind that I weren't bad, so the first 11 nabbed me from the 7th. From, from, from the 7th yeah. So <laughs> it wasn't like a steady progression. It was, <laughs> hey, you're playing at Russ next season. So. Did you notice the step up? Do you notice that? Not really. They, they were just a little bit younger and fitter. But yeah. did, did you think, I'm doing an amazing job in goal here, I've got an ability at this? I just thought that I could uh, handle what was what was happening. And one mm. of the big things was was dealing with crosses, strangely enough, you know, because they didn't put balls into the box with any great, you know, power and, and accuracy. They hang it up in the box to be competed for. Yeah. And, and I thought, well, I'm bigger than most people and I've got long arms, so I can come and, and start taking those balls. And that's what I started doing. And so then how does it progress? Because you played for a load of non-league clubs. Then. At what point do you go, this is a career? Well, I didn't, I didn't really think it was a career. It was, it was a thing that I'd always wanted to do. And, and strangely enough, going back with my school and being an outfield player and a goalkeeper you know, in, within the school team, um, I had a school teacher, and I bumped into him a couple of years ago, Dave Evans, who was a Welsh boy. Um, and I actually said to him, look, you know, I'm sure that I could be good for someone. Could you write for a trial? and say I can play in goal or on pitch. Exactly. So like I was, I was thinking, Campos, like, I, can, I can just cover, I can cover positions. Yeah. Um, but and how did that go? Did people take you on trial? He never wrote. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was, he was looking at me thinking, you don't really realise what football's about, do you? Yeah. <laughs> so were you good with your feet then? Yeah. Like, really good. That must have been put you in a prime position when the back pass rule came in well it did um but again we didn't really work on our bad foot right you know like yeah. nowadays you know when you know if you're coaching you always work with a goalkeeper and, and transfer the ball from one foot to the other foot and being able to deal with the back pass on yeah. your bad foot whereas literally that was the you know the saying it was only for standing on and if the ball came to my left foot i tried to hit it with the outside of my right foot oh really because i was really lacking in confidence with, with what i could do with or achieve to where i was going to get the ball when the back yeah. pass rule came in cuz we at plymouth we had peter shilton who just couldn't deal with it at all. Was he was he managing or playing then? Both. Both, yeah. Both, yeah. That's why couldn't, he was in Couldn't that. deal with what? <laughs> couldn't deal with the back pass. It just I couldn't deal with both. <laughs> but, um, was there like within the kind of the goalkeepers union to use a term were you all like they're not going to make us do this back pass like you must have all been talking about it right? Well, it was strange because with Wimbledon, Dave Bassett, I became the first, and this is strange as well. He came up to me one day and said, Lurch, I want you to, when everyone pushes up, when you've got the ball in your hands and everyone pushes up, you know, everyone knows you're going to lump it 70 yards down the other end of the pitch, I want you to put the ball down and dribble it out of the box. Yeah. And I'm looking, I'm thinking, there's someone behind the hedges over there, they're going to be watching me, like, and, you know, taking <laughs> photographs and winding. And, and he, he said to me, go and do it. So I'd done it, and then... You know, the other team, because you know, we had uh, players playing against, didn't know what to do. Yeah. They'd see me dribble out. He said, keep going, go on, keep going. Yeah. So I'd go probably 15 yards out of the box, and then I'd hit a diagonal ball to the edge of the 18-yard box where yeah. Fash would get up and head the ball across the box, and then everyone would charge. And it, it was like having a free kick or, you know, a, yeah. a cross going into the 18-yard box. So he found that I could, I could become more accurate with the ball off the floor than yeah. I could volley in the ball. I mean, mm. you see you see. So you're the kind of first-ever sweeper-keeper. You're the Manuel Neuer of your day. <laughs> it, it, it was really strange because, yeah. you know, sometimes I used to get a bit carried away. <laughs> and, and in a game, I'd get the ball and I'd look around and think, right, there's a space there, I can roll the ball. And there's still the opposition the other side of me. <laughs> so they could have quite easily come and, and tackle me. But I had this thing, got to get the ball down, put it down, smash it up there to Fash or whoever was playing yeah. up front. Yeah. And did they 
adapt to this? They'd seen this. Were they like, right, we need to we need to get people on better? I mean, people would still, because, again, we had the offside rule. It was offside yeah. wherever you were. So, you know, if they stood on me, my defence would push up to the halfway line. I'd volley the ball, and then if they headed it back, they're offside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they started thinking, well, I'm getting fed up with it. You're not going to stand on him. I'll stand somewhere near the, the halfway line, and if he puts it down, I'll have a run at him. Yeah, but, but you know they never got close enough. Yeah. Fortunately, that's amazing. You said then about players behind you. It was a big thing in the eighties and nineties when a goalkeeper put it down and then someone run yeah, out yeah. from behind. Did that ever happen to you? It, ne- it never happened to me. No, oh, I'll, do- I'll say I think he'd have got he'd have got an elbow if I <laughs> Did you? Um, so let's let's go to starting at Wimbledon. What was Plough Lane like? You you were training in a park with dogs running around. Yeah. Plough Lane's a notorious kind of eighties ground. Yeah. What was it like to play there? Was it for us? It was, for like? us, it was great. Well, the facilities were fantastic because um, you know you're looking at me like thinking fantastic facilities. <laughs> you haven't heard what I'm going to say. Was that after the game we had a nightclub under the stand. <laughs> So we, we'd come straight off the pitch, straight into, it was Nelson's nightclub, yeah. and, and that's, that was our players' bar, but we'd end up staying there for the nightclub. So yeah. we down. So that was the way the facilities were good. <laughs> you missed that uh, when they went so as far. Other than that, you know, the dressing rooms weren't great. You know, the away team dressing room was obviously worse than the home team dressing room. The, the water was cold. The floor was probably wet, a bit wet when they got in there. We used to do all the things that... I say we. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sam the players, the players didn't have too much to do with it, but it yeah. was it was the coaching staff yeah. would, would make the the opposition feel uncomfortable from the start. And were you like when you'd come out the dressing room and you'd see? Because there's this kind of story of like John Fashion who would be that stood there in a tiny towel showing off his physique. Were you like we're going to intimidate these physically and we're going to like? Is that a said thing or is that just does that just happen? Or is Dave Bassett gone, this is our tactic? No, it wasn't It wasn't like coming from the top. Fash used to like walking around in short towels. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I'd see him walking down the high street in one. <laughs> we, you know, we were vocal yeah. um, in more ways than one. We were vocal against the opposition. We were vocal with each other, like demanding, geeing each other up. And we were physical. We looked after ourselves on the pitch. And one th- one thing Dave Bassett would say was... You know, you're a team. You go out there as a team. You come in as a team. Nowadays, you know, it'd be you're intimidating the referee. Yeah. If there was anything, he'd say he can he'd send one of you off. He won't send ten of you off. <laughs> and so we all Brilliant. got there. And there was times that things were going on at the halfway, and I'm thinking, I've got to get there. So I'm, <laughs> you know, I'd always leg it there. And by the time I got there, it all calmed down. And I'm, I have to run back to the goals. <laughs> it must have felt amazing to be part of such a kind of. There's no kind of team that defines being a unit like that. Did it feel yeah. amazing to be part of that? When you're part of it, it, it felt great. Um, you also was looking out because, you know, the things that were going on at Wimbledon um, with our, our earnings weren't great. You wanted to be somewhere else to earn more money. Yeah. Um, but what was going on, and I've said, I look back at it and I say, it made me the man I am. Yeah, you know, it's not just the footballer. It, it just it made me the, the the character, the personality, and to be able to handle certain situations because you've been, you know, through life you're going to be sometimes in diverse positions, and I've had all that, and you know, yeah. I've had times when I just felt the whole world was looking at me. Mm. You know, later on in my career, when things happen, when things didn't go so well for you, uh, and and because you know your profile has changed from being a small little Wimbledon to you know a big club, then suddenly. You know, you feel that more eyes are looking at you. And, and that's, that's what Wimbledon, Wimbledon was. Wimbledon was a small club. We wanted to... And I think the, per, the person who defines that most was Vinny. Yeah. Vinny, was Vinny like? came in later. Yeah. But Vinny wanted to be famous. <laughs> you know, he did. You know, yeah. and, and he came in and he see Fash was a big name at the time. And so he kind of cottoned on to Fash a little bit and Fash could see that Vinny could look after himself. So he was quite happy to have him in with him. Vinny, Vinny had a, a target, and that's you know he achieved it, and he yeah. he wanted to make himself known one way or the other. And was Vinny Jones the person like Vinny Jones, the kind of myth that we see or saw at the time? I think he, I think he uh, ended up how he has as an actor. He was playing a role. Do you think? Yeah. He was yeah, right. definitely playing a role, but because he knew where he was going, but off the field could be a different character. <laughs> You know, he stayed around my house one night when we'd been up in London and in the morning 
he's reading the, the nursery rhymes. Oh, my kids were probably reading nursery rhymes for video. <laughs> <laughs> but no, he was there, he was there reading books with the kids in the morning, and and he done a lot. For, he does a lot for charity. Still does. Yeah. The image of Vinnie Jones looking after your kids. <laughs> I know it, it was actually frightening for me. I, I come down in the morning thinking, what are they going to do? <laughs> How did Vinnie handle the initiation? Did he get the same kind of tough initiation as everyone else, or were they? Was it? I think it varied, and most of it was on on the young lads, and especially if you knew someone was going to fight back, the initiations got a bit <laughs> milder. <laughs> Did you get your suit burnt? No, my, mine was um, mine was quite calm, really. All mine was, because I say I used to ride a motorbike. Was they filled my crash helmet with with talcum powder? <laughs> And so for about the next two weeks, because I could, because inside the crash it was all foam. Yeah, yeah. And, and the foam looked, seemed to absorb all the all the powder. <laughs> so the next two weeks, I was going around with grey hair. <laughs> there was some that, um, especially with the young lads, because the the skips in those days were the the wicker ones, not the metal big metal skips they put the stuff mm-hmm. in now. And uh, some of the young lads were put into the skip. They were soaked with one form or another of liquid, and then they were as if, like, t- rather than tired and feathered, they were they were powdered with flour <laughs> <laughs> and eggs. God, and, uh, so, bloody hell! Yeah. When Dave Bassett's going to sign players, he's thinking, are they going to fit into this kind of culture as De- much definitely. as he's thinking, are they they're a good definitely. player in a way? I mean, now you know, looking at it as from the time that I've had his coaching, you know, you do definitely look at people's personalities mm. you have to it's not just looking at the player you have to look at first of all are they going to fit in with the dressing room mm. you know are they going to be able to handle you know what goes on at a football club and in a modern dressing room it's it's far far tamer than, than it, yeah. it, it you was. couldn't do this, this stuff no, now no definitely no. definitely not you can't sign a guy for 20 million and then throw him in a skip and just throw <laughs> pee on him <laughs> just not going to fly <laughs> no well, the tactics of Wimbledon at that time were so direct, like away from the physical, very direct football, and like was it very prescriptive and like you've got to hit this man and all. That. And are the players like happy with that? We or... had we had areas to hit. A lot of it was the channel ball. Yeah, you know, putting it behind uh, centre halves and fullbacks to make them f- start facing their own goal. You look at some clubs that tried to follow what Wimbledon would do. I think Cambridge was one where. Yeah. Where they actually grew the grass, yeah, in the corner of their pitches. So as when they hit the channel ball over, it would slow down and wouldn't go out of place. So you know you got the chance of catching up, stopping the opposition, clearing the ball well. So so we worked on putting balls in areas, and and there was um it was a big directive from the the FA. It was uh one of the words used was the pomo ball. Position of maximum opportunity. Well done. Yeah, see. There we go. And, Sam Allardyce was doing that a couple yep. of years ago. <laughs> 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 no, that was yeah. the position of maximum opportunity tended to be at the back post. You know, you don't often score goals from outside the box, and so get the ball into the area where you're most likely to score the, the goals and get the bodies in there as well. And it's funny, like so, like you've got all these characters. You've got Dave Bassett, all the dressing room, and then you've got Sam Hamann, the guy who owns the club, who's, who's probably equally as mad as everyone else. Did you have many interactions with him? Yeah, Sam. Sam was great. He was uh, again, like I say, we wasn't we wasn't earning a lot of money. Salaries were relatively non-league amateurish really yeah and sam would come down to training ground he'd come in his suit and his brogues and he used to always have a thing he's i think he'd quite like me and he'd always say come on you dave penalties me and you (laughs) okay sam (laughs) and like 500 pounds but it wouldn't be for me this would be for the team you know yeah and i've got a team are gathered round yeah so they're they're watching him take penalties and so we go in the muddiest goal mouth obviously so he can't stand up um (laughs) You know, the penalty spot you could hardly see it, so you'd, you'd increase it to. And he's in yards. his brogues. He's in it. his brogues, and, take, <laughs> and he's, say, he's saying, "I'll get five. I said, "Sam, you've got no chance to get five. <laughs> I say, "I'll say you get two. <laughs> right? If I get two, then then I don't pay any money. And you know, he'd get lucky with one of them. It'd toe punt, and it'd go completely the wrong direction. But he'd never ever win. <laughs> <laughs> so this was this was like a little bonus for the lads. It's yeah. five hundred quid have a night out which we used to always do oh, were wow. you negotiating your own contracts and stuff at that yeah. point didn't have agents in those days um, the first time I come across an agent was after Fash came to, to Wimbledon he had an agent which was, was like a, a celebrity agent was Eric Hall Eric Hall Monster oh, Monster Monster, Monster, Monster. <laughs> yeah yeah, and, um, and, and Eric done our players pool for the FA Cup final 
which again, you know, suddenly some of the things, you know, we're trying to focus on, you know, playing the biggest game of our career. And Eric's saying, right, you've got to put the Sun newspaper there. You've got to be drinking Lucas A's. <laughs> So it's, it's unbelievable. It's like Anthea Turner's wedding day. So, so Sam Man comes down to training, he takes his penalty. Did the team like him? Yeah, Sam, Sam was... Um, and do you think that's like, he wants to miss those penalties? He wants, to, that's yes. his way of getting the... Well, it's in fact, that he, he didn't have a chance anyway <laughs> to, to score them, but he knew that he was coming down. He wanted to partake in a training session with the lads and be one of the boys... And he also wanted to give you a little bit of money on the side to say, and so you you thought well of him as well. Yeah, you know, like he's coming down. He's not a bad lad, that Sam. Yeah, you know, he's mucking like, in. He's yeah, one yeah, of he's us. Yeah. And, and, and he used to when we used to go out. Did he go to the nightclub in the? He would he would come down there. He would come down if we went up uptown. You know, we used to have a couple of nights in a place called Studio of Albon. <laughs> up in London. I don't know what it's called nowadays, but we used to go down there, and Sam would put his his card behind the bar, oh, and, and it'd be it'd be drinks. And then it started getting abused a bit. The cocktails were going on, so we'd quickly slip it back again. <laughs> but the fact that we were all, you know, it was everyone, it was, it was like, you know, your wives, everyone was there. It was always a family type of thing when we went out. It was everyone's yeah. got to be there. Oh, it sounds great. Yeah. Do you know what? Wish I played for Wimbledon. <laughs> <laughs> I sat here going, this sounds... I think you were saying before you would find it terrifying. I, I was like, that, that would be my worst nightmare. But actually, <laughs> once you're in, you're in, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. It's like I the did, mafia. Definitely, definitely. And this yeah. is the thing now, we've we've still got a WhatsApp group. Have you? Really? Yeah, massive. What's and, it called? It's called uh No, it's called uh <laughs> <laughs> It's called Don's and One Irritant. Who's the one irritant? Dennis Wise. No, the physio. <laughs> Derek French. <laughs> and he's in the group. What's the WhatsApp group like? Is it like It's it, humour. It's, yeah, yeah, is it like the old days? Oh, but in a it's WhatsApp. brilliant. It's That's brilliant. amazing. Oh, man. Yeah. This is... I love that so much that you're all still in a WhatsApp yeah. group. Yeah. And, and, and again, this is, you know, with Wimbledon, Wally Downs is Wimbledon. Yeah. This is, you know, we've, we've had a, you know, he's had a, a tough time of it recently, obviously, because of what happened at Wimbledon. The club he loved, yeah. managing it and then, you know, losing his job. People that in the group feel that he was a bit harshly yeah. treated. Yeah. Um, is Wally Downs on the chat? Yeah, yeah he's, he, he's the one who set because he went to. He's admin. That's his name, admin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is it. Are you, have you got a little? <laughs> All right, I'm Laurie Sanchez. I'll admit. <laughs> <laughs> now you've got you've got a far better human than Sanchez. Right. Um, well, Dave, Dave Bassett left in 1987, and in comes Bobby Gould. Is Bobby Gould on the chat? No, Gordy's not. No, no, no. Yeah, because no, Harry he's, is. He's, Harry's on it. Oh, is really? It? That's Dave Bassett. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and with the. Um, Bobby Gould coming in. Bobby Gould, like, you're exchanging one big character for another there. Gould coming in for Bassett. What well, the, was, was there a cha- any change in tone at the club? Or? Well, the strange thing is, was Gouldie actually had been part of the Wimbledon crazy game beforehand because Dave Bassett brought him in as an experienced player. But when he came in, there were lots of things that the players were up to that Dave Bassett got to find out about far too easily. Right. Yeah, normally if things were going on, Harry had to work to find out what was going on. And he yeah. did, he used to graft. Yeah. And suddenly, and so we said, it's Gordy. <laughs> he's coming, he's, he's ha- nearly, nearly Harry's age, he's, he's telling him everything that goes on. And so so we, what kind of things are you talking about? Well, just any, anything, you know, when we, we'd, Harry knew you after training, we used to slip across the road and have a pint or something <laughs> like that. You know? yeah, yeah. And was he, um, did he change much or was it just the same kind of feeling of... I think he, um, and Gordy, I think he's pleased with the, the way he handled the situation because obviously someone coming in, if, if someone came into job. Wimbledon and tried to suddenly say, right, we're going to play out of the back, you know, we're going to keep bouncing off the goalkeeper, we're going to have 35 passes before we get anywhere near the halfway line. You've got the wrong group of players. Yeah. He came in, he, he said, I'm not going to change anything. I might tinker with a few things, add a few things, but I know what a good thing's going here. I'm just going to continue it. Yeah. And I think the best thing he done was bring in Don Howe. And Don Howe was, you know, we all looked and thought, God, Don Howe from the Arsenal. Mm. Yeah. And we was thinking, now Don's going to come in and want us to do slightly different things, play the way that Arsenal play. But he, he just, he loved what we had at the football club. He loved the way the players were together. He loved the, the way that everything we'd done, we'd done for a purpose. He bought into it more than, than try to change anything that was going on. I can see why, because I've bought into it now. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, let's just ask one more thing about Bobby Gould. Because he told us that he'd, like, um, he'd settle disputes by he'd have a fight yeah. with one of the players, the a wrestle, the circle. We'd have the circle, yeah. Did you ever go into the circle with Bobby Gould? 
No, Wisey did. Did he? Oh, yeah. yeah two small did. guys. <laughs> two, that well, sounds scrappy. Probably Gordy thought he had a chance against someone smaller. <laughs> but with Wisey, you're picking probably on someone who's. Uh, so this is, is Bobby Gould would offer to fight the player or wrestle the player. Would it, would it, would it, there'd be a disagreement. So the, yeah. whatever it was, there was a dis- I, I can't remember what the disagreement was, and it would say, right, let's sort it out in a circle. And cause so it, you it, stop training, blow well, whistle. It, it was the morning. Oh, the, okay. the, the circle was always pre-training, so we get out. Pre-training, not even fired no, up. No, God. so literally we get out, and this is the thing we didn't do all these massive stretching warm-ups we have to do now. The pre-activation where they go in the gym for do it for 25 yeah. minutes before they should go on a training field. We'd have a circle, we'd ping a ball around. We used to call it vendetta ball because you could tuck your mate up. Whereas normally you pass it and it's got to be, you know, get the people in the middle chasing round, you attack your mate up. So you have a ping a ball across, which they struggle to deal with, drop it short for the fella next to you because you know the person in the middle is going to go and tackle that person. They're not not just standing there trying to intercept. It was a tackle, like a slide tackle. And that circle then became the circle that we sorted any any problems out in. And so YZ and Gordy get in the circle, get nice and tight, huddle up. You know, they have a little wrestle. There's a few little right hooks thrown in from the circle from the outside. <laughs> on the manager. On, on the manager. On, on the manager a few times. <laughs> but, but I think Gordy actually cracked a rib in, well, his, in, his, in his fight with, with Dennis. Oh, but you man. think it's like, it's amazing that players, you know, you're picking these players at the weekend. You're trying to uh, beat them up in the yeah, week. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it, like I say, we, we never really had injuries from things we done that, you know, you think, oh, God, if that was stupid, what are we doing that for? Yeah. If we did, you never let it be known. Yeah. You know, you go out there on the game on the Saturday, get through it, or as much as you can do, and then say, oh, I've got something. It was, it, but it never was a result of the antics you were getting up to yeah. previously. Um, so let's move on to the greatest day in the history of Wimbledon Football Club. FA Cup final, 1988. Um, greatest giant killing in the history of the FA Cup final. You beat Luton in the semi-final, Wyatt Lane, and you're basically you're kind of mid-table. You've got not much to play for. What's the month building up to the FA Cup final like? Well, you say we had nothing to play for. That was our um, second season in the top flight, mm. and, and we finished sixth or seventh that season. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, all right, to big clubs, that's nothing to play for. Yeah. For us, coming from where we'd been yeah, yeah, to yeah. where we suddenly are, and all right, now the cup final was taken over. Yeah. Um, and between the... I think the semi-final, as you said, and the final, we played seven games and didn't win any of them. We drew we drew a lot of them. Yeah. And on the Monday before, we, I think we played on a Monday before the cup final on the Saturday. Really? We played Man United away. They got into us, physically got really? into us. You know, Brian Robson, Gordon Strachan, um, I think Mark Hughes was there. They had a team then that were quite, they could look after themselves, but, you know, if it normally come to a battle, we fancied ourselves to, to win yeah. the battle. They were saying to us, hey, you've got a cup final Saturday, have you? Hey? Hey? Do you think you're going to be out there? When a few tackles were flying around. Oh, so wow. it, it got a little bit naughty. We, and we, we went 1-0 up and we lost 2-1. Were oh. you what, At that point, were you thinking... Because you must be thinking, I don't want to get injured here. Definitely. That, mm. And that was what I was saying. Man United, with all their experience, they were playing on that. that the fact that, you know, if there was a 50-50, I think, or, or a 60-40 in our favour... Yeah. They're the ones that you get hurting when you know they're in yeah. your favour and someone might leave a foot there a bit late, coming a little bit late. So they were, they definitely were, were playing games with us and physically, yeah. you know, beating us, probably at our own game, saying because we had a cup final on the Saturday. Yeah. Were you pulling back a bit yourself? Like you're thinking, I don't want to be, I've got to be playing in this cup final. This is the thing as a goalkeeper, I don't think you can. Yeah, yeah. you know, you, the ball when the ball's there, you got to try and get it because if you're not, it's going to end up in the back of the net. And in the build-up to the cup final. There's all the kind of, in those days, there's the cup final things. So it was brilliant. You, was it? Was it, it was ma- brilliant. You know, the fact that... Was it like a brilliant month of your life? Well, the week. The actual the week. week. But you'd recorded a single as well, hadn't yeah, you? Yeah, that was At funny. Abbey Road. At Abbey Road. <laughs> I mean, we, we wanted to do a, a remake of uh, The Wombles of Wimbledon. Yeah. That's Why? what we wanted to do. But we had a songwriter that came in and um, and we'd done this song and it was it was, I think it was called We Are Wimbledon, and it was kind of harmonies and harmonies. And, yeah, oh, and, that's you know, not a crazy who, game. And, and but I, I think because of my deeper voice, you know, and I was quite close to a microphone. I, I got told, "Can you just move back a row?" <laughs> <laughs> but the thing was, was that you know we're there. We, we was loving the day. Part of you know Abbey Road Studios. Let's go and do the photograph. So we yeah. go out and, and the photographers oh, are yeah. there on the crossing. So I think there was myself, Dennis Wise, 
uh, Fash and Brian Gow. So we're doing it, and we've caused a bit of a traffic jam. Yeah. You know, because they're, yeah, they're yeah. trying to set it up. So there's a, a bit of a queue, and then suddenly some idiot has decided, I ain't waiting in this traffic, I'll overtake. So he's overtaken, come down the outside, we're on the crossing, at the front was Fashion Vinny, and as his cars came past, they've booted it. <laughs> they've booted it all down the side of the car, and the fella's stopped, he's got dents all down the side of his car. <laughs> so we've gone back in the studio, and he's called the police. Whoa. So the police have come, we've got dragged back outside and said, well, you know, what's happened? And when we told him what happened, he went, oh, really? So he overtook on the crossing. Oh, did he? He said, <laughs> OK, you better go back and finish what you're doing. I've got a word, never heard from the fella again. <laughs> I think he Amazing. was told, you better, you better just disappear. But his car had all these dents down the <laughs> wow. side of it. Of all the two people uh, you want yeah. to, like, run over at a zebra crossing. Did you have the suits as well fitted and all we, that? Um, we done, and again, I don't know what, you, you lot are all too young for it. Do you remember the clothes show? Yeah. yeah, with Jeff Banks. Jeff Banks, yeah. the clothes show. So, again, they want to do a thing with us, and we was open for any publicity we could get. <laughs> and so we've had the suits made by um, oh, that well-known brand Topshop. <laughs> <laughs> but we had, So we had these suits made by Topshop, and, and the clothes shows came down to Plough Lane, and they've got us walking across the terraces in our suits, <laughs> me leaning against the goalpost. Amazing. It was, it was, but it was all part of the, you know, what I've seen before. You know, I've, I've been a, a 14-year-old kid watching, you know, the colour TV and seeing, you know, the captains of the football teams go up. You've seen the, the road to Wembley where they're on the bus and yeah. you've got a camera crew looking at the helicopters above, yeah. looking down upon the coach. You see them go... And I wanted to do all that. We all wanted to do all that. And it was to be able to be part of that was, was just unbelievable. You grew up like a stone's throw from Wembley, didn't you? So that must have been incredible. I'm moment. a Wilsdon boy, yeah, um, which isn't too far at all. And my first house was Kingsbury. I could see the Twin Towers every day going to work. I'd drive over the hill, see the Twin Towers, and I'm off to Wimbledon. So they think, oh, this is great. We're going to put this into a story. They best not playing at Wembley, sees the Twin Towers yeah. every day. But I was on the wrong side of the hill to see the Twin Towers. So they've had to make me walk... You know, they've got the photograph of me coming up the hill, the Twin Towers in the background. I've had to walk into someone else's drive. <laughs> just, just so as it fitted the, the story. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbour, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbour, State Farm is there.